look forward to retirement and avoid the pitfalls. Keep listening for ways to maximize your retirement income. More Than Money with the Popowich Carmelli Advisory Group, CIBC Woodgundy, on News Talk 770. Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. I'm Faisal Carmelli, my co-host here, Dave Popwich. How you doing, buddy? I'm terrific. How about you? Whoo, heat wave. Yeah, it's been warm. I'm not going to complain. It'll be uh, winter soon enough. Yeah, you always say that. I know. You're such a Debbie Downer. Just, yeah. Can we not just complain about something no, for a short no, period of time? No, not now. Versus are, always looking about the silver lining. Things are opening up. It's nice weather. We don't get rain every three days from the hot weather. It's actually pretty good. Yeah. Although I did talk to some of my friends in BC, and they are not having a very good experience, right, with the heat wave. Yeah. Far too hot. Fires, yeah. the smoke. Farmers are not happy. It, yeah, crops and cattle and all kinds of things being and, affected. And that's a good point because uh, um, CN Rail stopped some yeah. of the rail car travel between Linton and Kamloops uh, this week uh, because of the fires and so forth. Think about what Canadians, especially in Western Canada, because of the shipping and so forth, have to go through. We are coming out of a pandemic, both uh, most in the Western Canada are opening up or have already opened up. Um, you're, you've got a supply chain issue around the world. Yep. You then get um, inflation because of that. You then also have a labor shortage in a lot of the reopening of some of these retail and uh, tourism and hospitality industry. You then also get this, these fires that stop transportation, short term we're going to call it, but still a stop. That's a triple whammy to a lot of individuals and the business owners, which will slow down the economy to some degree. And that's, a, that's what I don't think is being forecasted right. uh, when it comes to th what the Bank of Canada talked about this week and their whole bond tapering, thinking inflation is going to be a little bit higher short term, slowing down the economy a bit. But they didn't, they didn't mention any of that type of stuff yeah. when it came to the, the... Let's talk about that because I think that is something that... Um, uh, is people are missing. And, uh, you know, when I talk to people locally, things are opening up, they're feeling better, right? Some people are going to the stampede. It feels very different. But yeah. we, we, we forget that this is a microcosm of a bigger picture and there's still problems. And I want to get to that. Okay. But we're going to have a really good show today, particularly for business owners. Um, you guys, if you know somebody, have them tune in. Uh, if you're a business owner, you want to stick around for that because there is a bill that was introduced recently to try to uh, resolve a decades-old tax discrepancy, yep. right, that can negatively impact uh, business owners on the sale of a business to a family member or some a related party of some kind. And there's there's another, I think, a bigger issue yep. to this one is that, you know, the our members of parliament have been voted in to create laws for the general good of the society. Yep, to okay. legislate, yep. So they've legislated this bill. It's, be, it's received a royal assent. Mm -hmm. And right after it got royal assent on this bill, members of the federal government said, mm, we're going to punt this until next year. Right. You can't use this bill today. Let's not talk about the tax side of this issue. The concern that I have is, does the federal government have the power to put a bill into place and then say they have the discretionary authority to decide when they want to implement this bill. Exactly. So to me, this is a bigger issue than just the tax benefit for, for business owners. Yep. This is a overreaching legal issue. I'm glad that they're addressing the concern that business owners have. And now that they're trying to do this move, 
what's going to really happen? And so we've got a couple of guests on our show to talk about the tax side of it, yep. the impact of business owners, and we'll have some legal conversation about, you know, is this right or not? And, and I think you're going to hear some um, colorful words coming up from our guests <laughs> we'll on, see, on this one. See how controlled they are, how disciplined they are in their language. <laughs> okay, you raise some interesting issues, uh, because if we talk about markets in general uh, this week, the... You know, we, we spoke last week. It's a bit of a springboard from last week. We talked about what the bond markets are telling us. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, about the virus, okay, the Delta variant. We've now got a Lambda variant. What does this actually mean? What's happening in Asia versus what's happening here, right? I said that people in Alberta are getting excited. Vaccinations are going up. Economies reopening. People are getting back together. But that's not necessarily true everywhere. We have been pounding the table to our clients, letting them know, do not assume that everything is a-okay just because you got a-okay in your backyard. Right. We're seeing low numbers on COVID cases in Canada. We're seeing a rise now in the United States of, yep. uh, from unvaccinated regions. Yep. Interesting number one. So that's a little bit close to home so we can see that, right? Yep. But that's not going to slow down the economy. Well, this week, Indonesia became the leader of the most active COVID cases in, in uh, they're beating Brazil. Yeah, in the world, I think. Right? So yeah. when you look at who are the top um, uh, COVID cases, uh, which countries have the top ones, you're going to see India. Mm-hmm. You're going to see China is coming back up. You're seeing Indonesia now. Brazil's in there. If you look at where the lion's share of the increase in COVID cases are happening, it's in Africa and Asia. Right. Yes, uh, South America has a problem, but no one's really talking about it. And look how quiet the Olympic Games are right now. You know, you, you get some, some members inside the Olympic uh, Games already been tested positive for COVID. Right. Uh-oh. And yep. they've already removed fans. Yep. No one's talking about this. Well, and, and what they're also not talking about is remember, although, so you would look at Asia again and vaccination rates perhaps not um, happening at the pace that they're happening, say, in Canada and the United States and developed Europe, but even the vaccinations that they're receiving may not necessarily have the same efficacy as, say, what Pfizer and Moderna have, right? Correct. So there's a bunch of factors at play here that I think we tend to forget about when we localize what our experience is at home in Calgary or you know some some part of Canada or the United States that doesn't necessarily mean from an investment perspective right from an economics perspective that everything is going to be fine and i'm i'm really interested to talk to people in our industry who don't even mention it right so when we're having a chat with them on online or we see them at one of these functions that are out there and we're like, so what's your thesis behind the Delta variant right. or, or the Lambda variant? And how, is it in, how are you positioning your portfolio? And they're like, what? Yeah. What's, what's going on? What do yeah. you mean? Or what's the next variant going to be? What? Yeah, no. So we have seen some good market returns. Yep. And um, in this market, and we can dissect why it's up and so forth the way it is, what's missing in the data of the stock market, which I think the bond market is looking at. They're looking at, yeah. Okay. And I can see that because how currency is being played, how, yep. how foreign bonds, especially in Asia, are looking at. And what we forget, that whatever, when, when the U.S. gets a cold, we get the flu. Right. But when Asia gets the cold, or the, the entire world <laughs> yeah. gets the flu. Yep. 
because 70% of the population is in that region. Right. And if you're looking at how it's going to drive the economy forward, it is the supply and the demand of that region that is the bellwether of the world. And the supply chain impacts and all of those things, Everything. right? All of it, it's, it flows through there. I That's explained right. this on the air uh, um, a few days ago. Think of why Canada will be impacted of what's happening in China. We send our raw materials to the U.S. and China, okay? They turn that into product. They sell it to Walmart, for example. Walmart takes those toys and sells it to my kids. Right. So we are the producer of the raw material and the buyer of the finished, finished product. product. Yeah. If they can't make those toys, two things are going to happen. One, we're, we're lacking supply. Number two, my kids are very unhappy. Very unhappy. Right? That's not good. That's not a good sign. That's not good for anybody. Right? So in those cases, for, okay, my kids are not happy most of the time when it comes to me, <laughs> so it doesn't matter. But when we're talking about, we're talking about uh, the, the economy, that's a big headwind. Yep. Not even mentioned in most people's portfolios. Right. Most people in our industry are not talking to their clients about that. And that's why I want to raise it. And I said, watch the Olympics, because what comes out of that? They have a lot of media attention and little things that they can hide. They're at what, 5 6% big, um, vaccination rates? Yeah. Oh, it's very low. Oh, my God. That's right. Very low. So we've got, we've got a problem there. We've got to fix that problem. Yeah. It'll take some time, but it also brings a big... Uh, headwind. Well, it has an impact right here locally, right? And people forget that, right? So we got to look. We got to look beyond those kinds of things. Now we have to put a strategy together. These things. This is what we're facing today. We understand it's a global marketplace, but we have a lifestyle that we want to lead as people transition in retirement. And the fact is, COVID is increasing the number of retirements. People are either not going back or they're transitioning to it. And so it's more important than ever that we get this. Uh, we, that we get the structure and the discipline right. Uh, tax is an important topic for everybody and, uh, of course, uh, very important to Canadian uh, business owners who might be in the process of transitioning a business. Now, there was a new bill brought forward, which we're going to have some discussion about today, that was really designed to resolve a decades-old inconsist tax inconsistency when selling to related parties. Yeah, so let's kind of get the understanding of what the bill is about. This has a big impact to business owners who are selling. A lot of them use that proceeds for retirement. Yep. And so let's get our, our uh, reoccurring guest and expert on tax, uh, Kim Moody, CEO, Moody's Tax. Kim, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Pleasure. So let's talk a little bit about Bill C-208. That, of course, won't make sense to most people, um, but it does to you. And it does have some significant tax implications. Kim, why don't you give us a bit of an overview of what Bill C-208 uh, C is designed to do? Sure. It's, uh, it's a little complicated, but I think it's rather easy to understand if I put it by way of an example. And this issue goes back about 35-ish years. So it's not a new issue, but it's been something that uh, people have been complaining about. The government is committed to try to solve it, uh, but there's been lots of delays. So, so Dave, let's say you own a company, you own shares of a private company, and you want to sell that to your son, for example. Well, if you sell it personally, uh, so you sell your shares to your son and he buys them personally, uh, no problem, you can claim capital gains deduction. But if you turn around and sell those shares to your son's private company, now that's recharacterized as not a capital gain, but as a dividend. And you cannot claim your capital gains deduction because in order to claim your capital, your, your, it's roughly $880,000 capital gains deduction uh, today because it's indexed with, with inflation, you need to have firstly a capital gain. And so the rules 
recharacterize in a situation like that, that you don't have a capital gain, you've got a dividend. Whereas if you sell your shares of, of your private company to me, for example, uh, and even if it's my company that buys your shares, no problem. And so the rules are very, they distinguish between related parties, non-arm's length parties, and arm's length. And so, it, the, so the rules are very critical. Um, critical is the wrong word. The, the rules uh, are biased against sales of shares to a non-arm's length party. And the reason for that is that if you, if you look at all the rules uh, and ultimately what's happening, Dave, if you sell your shares to your son's company and you take back cash or a promissory note, what, what really is happening is your son can use the existing surplus of, of your company that you're selling to repay your, uh, the amounts owed to you. We call that in my industry, we call that surplus stripping. And because by definition, there's only one way that you can get corporate after-tax surplus out of a company, and that's usually by way of a dividend. And for anybody that's gone to accounting school, you'll know that. But so the rules say, listen, if you're, if you're stripping surplus out to a related party, we're going to tax you as a dividend. But if, you're, but if you sell it to somebody else and they strip surplus to repay you, no problem. So that's kind of the core of the issue. So fast forward to 2015 and they're trying to solve this problem in an NDP private member's bill, um, actually it was 16, I guess. Uh, tried to uh, say, yeah, you know what, we need to extend the ability to have Dave's son use the um, uh, use a company to buy the shares. Private members' bill got killed. Fast forward to uh, 2017, and we probably lots of your audience remembers the private corporation tax battle that happened in in the summer of 2017, and there was a proposal to. Uh, really go after surplus stripping on kind of a broad basis. They backed down from that. But what they did in 2017 is the government said, we're going to allow um, genuine intergenerational transfers. As long as it is a genuine transfer from Dave to his son uh, and allow Dave to use his capital gains deduction. But we want some feedback as to what does a genuine transfer look like? What, you know, and so they sought feedback and some people like me and organizations like KALU and, and a bunch of other organizations provided feedback to the government. And, uh, and they've sat on it ever since. They've done absolutely nothing uh, with that feedback ever since. Fast forward to this year and there's a private member's bill that basically cut and paste the previous private member's bill. Really, that's all they did. They cut and pasted. And, and surprisingly, it got passed and received royal assent on, on uh, June the 29th. The problem with the bill and, uh, is that it doesn't really define genuine transfers. And so really, if, and I'm oversimplifying this, but really, if your son ends up controlling, then you can claim a capital gains deduction, even if it's not a genuine transfer. And so the mischief basically is, okay, I could turn around and transfer, or Dave could turn around and transfer those shares to your daughter. And your daughter is not going to take care of the business and really has no interest in the business. But now you can strip out all that money and use the capital gains deduction. So that's the real concern with the bill that the, that the government had. But it got passed. On June the 29th, it received royal assent. 
In a very surprising move, the next day, the government released, uh, released a uh, press release. Never seen anything like this. And it said, because there is no application date in the bill, the government intends to release legislation later this year to clarify that the application date of this bill will be January 1st, 2022. Well, you know, to the average person who doesn't understand tax law or understand law in general, and to be clear, I'm, a, I'm an accountant, I'm not a lawyer, but I hang around uh, tax law all the time. And so that statement in and of itself, uh, am I allowed to say BS on your program? You guys did, yeah, absolutely. Okay, because there was no clarification needed. So that statement was total BS because the law is extremely clear on this. And it's not fuzzy that once a bill, if it doesn't have an application date in the bill, it receives roll assent, it's immediately good law and becomes effective law. So that was a very, very misleading statement by the government. And uh, I, and actually, quite frankly, I'm I'm very, what's the word? I'm not angry, but I'm 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 disappointed that the government would do that. That the Department of Finance would release something like that because it is effective law. But certainly, the government was in, was signaling that they intend to gut this law. And Kim, intend in your to, experience, um, yeah. how many of your your clients are selling their shares to their children or grandchildren is that a bigger piece of this of sales of business or are most sale of business going to third party i would say in my experience about half and half you know there's certainly the, is, that's a, that's what i've been hearing right kim yeah. that's what i've been hearing and i think that's an important piece because intergenerational corporate ownership has been around since the farmlands and so it's just it's it's just now we're catching up to the fact that hey you know what dave your son, if you had one, can buy your, your company through his company. It just makes good sense. And finally, the government has put a bill in and accepted it. The problem, like you said, Kim, is that it's, it's been punted till next yeah. year. And I believe next week they're going to be talking about, um, you know, let's, let's get the clarification of all this confusion and going on. So why would a government want to delay that? They've already got royal assent. Like, just let it go. Like, why not? Why would, why would you think in your experience with all the things that government has done when it comes to tax, why defer this one to next year? Because the, the bill is not perfect. The bill does allow mischief to occur. Uh, using the example where, you know, with Dave, if, if he transfers his shares to his daughter's company, well, that's not a genuine transfer in the example that I used. And so that allows surplus to be stripped out at capital gains allowing uh, Dave to use his capital gains deduction. So the, so rightfully, you know, the government's concerned about, you know, mischievous surplus stripping. I think that's a, a, an admirable thing to be concerned about because that's uh, inappropriate uh, tax, if you want to call it planning. Having said that, the government had 35 years to deal with this issue and recently five years to deal with this issue. And most recently, when they announced in 2017, four years to deal with this issue. I have very little sympathy for the government and the Department of Finance, um, you know, on this. And yes, COVID has delayed things. But having said all that, the way that they press released this thing and said that they're going to change the law, very, very, um, I'm tempted to use some strong, stronger language. I'll yeah, just say that's it's, the it's part horrible. that scares me. 
right, Kim? That's the part that scares me. You get royal assent, it's law. It, it's law. And if, the, if if they can do it in this situation, can they do it in other situations, sure. regardless if it's taxed or not? That's my concern. Right. You know, I sure. understand there's 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 no law out there that's perfect that will prevent any mischievous activity out there. People who want to be mischievous will find a way to figure to get around those rules. Um, and, and in this case, I'm just really concerned about the legal side of things versus just the tax side of things. But Kim, you know, th we could be talking about this for a long time and we're gonna come back and talk about when this does get clarified. Um, what do business owners need to do to make it done, to do it right? And that's why I wanna bring you back. Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks a lot, guys. Um, and Faisal, you know, we just, we just talked to Kim about the tax implications uh, of C-208. This, this has broad-based implications to all kinds of Calgary businesses. And so we're going to try to get some perspective on, uh, on what our Chamber of Commerce thinks with respect, and its members think yeah. about what, uh, what Bill C-208 represents. The Canadian Chamber of Commerce pushed back on this, and let's find out why, what's the, the mindset behind there, what are their members thinking. Yeah. And so we've got Deborah Yeldon. She is our president and CEO of the Calgary Chamber of Commerce. Deborah, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me this morning. So, so Deborah, maybe we could just start with, um, let's talk about the Chamber's position on, on Bill C-208 and, uh, and where you and your members stand on this. What's really important to remember is that so many of our businesses in Canada are small businesses and many of them are family owned. And the importance of Bill C-208 is to reduce the financial burden for businesses in Canada. That includes giving families the ability to sell their businesses to family members in a tax-effective way. And so that's why that bill, yes. Bill C-208, is so important. The fact it's delayed is also of concern. Yes, and we understand that this has been a problem. There's been a tax discrepancy on that transition for, for a long, long time. And the government has finally got to a place where... Um, it looks like they took the steps to try to resolve that, but, but then a very unusual step was taken on this delay. After royal assent, which generally speaking means it becomes law immediately, the government has taken that unusual step of delaying this until the early, until the, uh, 2022, January 2022. What impact do you think that's going to have on Calgary businesses that are you know, thinking of transitioning right now? Well, and that's a very good point, because when you talk to people today, there are a lot of individuals that are saying, having come through the pandemic, having managed their businesses right. through the pandemic, they're saying, you know, I think I'm ready. I'm ready to sell my business to my family members. I'm ready to take a different route. I've had enough. I'm tired. And it's time for the next generation to step up. And so you know, what I understand is the, the fourth quarter of this year, we could see a lot of those conversations happening because of the challenges that we've come through. And to have this uh, legislation be put off until January of 2022, that doesn't help from a certainty perspective, from a financial planning perspective. And it obviously doesn't make sense given that the bill's already had royal assent. So why do you think the government would do this, Deborah? Like, why would they punt to next year versus... I, again, I've never seen this ever happen when, when a bill gets get royal assent where there's not a date of implementation in the bill where they say, ah, we'll, we'll, we'll give you more clarity next year. Why, would, why do you think the government did this? That's a very good question. It's, it's a tough one to answer, but I also know that the Finance Committee led by Wayne Easter is convening next week to address this issue. So it could be that we'll see a resolution uh, before the election writ is dropped. To my mind, 
this makes sense to be have a clear path for implementation before the election writ is dropped sometime in August is what, what everybody's expecting. But it really, it just from a small business perspective, it really makes no sense whatsoever because it's just not tax effective and it's not efficient for businesses who are looking to make some changes and crystallize some value too. That's another another issue to talk about. Yeah, Deborah, I don't know if you know these numbers or not off the top of your head, but how many of your members, when they sell their business, sell to family members versus third party? So I don't know those numbers off the top of my head, but we do know that small businesses are the engine of the Canadian economy and 95% of businesses in Calgary are small businesses. And so we need to be mindful that they are there are many successful businesses that have been started by families that are now in that in the midst of that generational transfer. And it's not an insignificant number of, of, uh, of businesses, but I don't know what the number is. We were talking to Kim Moody prior to prior to our conversation right now in, in Kim Moody's practice as, as on the tax and legal side. He's saying it's about 50-50, half sell to family members and half sell to third party. If we use his, his practice as, yeah. as a bellwether, that's about 50% of all businesses in the city will probably go to family members. That's a big impact, especially when you're talking about close to $900,000 of capital gains exemption that you can move on mm -hmm. if it's properly structured, that's billions of dollars of lost money that this city will lose out on because of this bill being deferred uh, possibly to 2022. Potentially, yeah. Well, and it, you know, when you look at where we've come as a city, and it's not just, you know, we've had a very tough time the last 16 months, but we've had a tough time for the last seven years. That's right. Because, you know, since the oil price collapsed. And so it's 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 imperative that we preserve the capital so that it can be reinvested in, in growth opportunities in Calgary. That is something that is job one for, for the Calgary Chamber to make sure that we are able to support our members the best way we can. And that includes advocating for them for these kinds of issues that we're talking about this today. Deborah, what's the message you're taking in your respective chambers across the country? What are you, what are you guys doing um, to, to stress the impact that this is having on your members? Well, we're speaking to levels of government that we need to. We're speaking to the federal government through the Canadian Chamber and the president of the Canadian Chamber, the Honourable Perrin Beatty. So we're making sure that these concerns are being heard at the highest levels so that the, that the government can consider, reconsider its position at this point. Like I said, there is a finance next week and hopefully we'll see some a, a change in direction in terms of this implementation of this of this bill because it doesn't make any sense yeah we one of the concerns we expressed wasn't just on the tax implications that this might have on business owners but the broader implication of the government taking that unusual step of delaying a bill that's received royal assent right so i don't know what implications that could have on a broader basis we'll have to see how that plays out and our fingers are crossed that next week we get a little bit of uh uh, movement or clarity on what on C208 itself, but your comments maybe generally about the broader implications on the on the delay. Well, I think what that goes to is uncertainty, and if there's one thing businesses don't like, it's uncertainty, and they can't plan effectively for the future in terms of what they want to do for their businesses, and that can have an impact on everything from staffing levels how they raise money, yep. what kind of relationship they have with their banks, what their lending lines are. This has huge implications for so many businesses on, on many levels. And so anything that causes uncertainty is, a, is, is definitely not, is, is anything but positive. 
Deborah, I think it takes even one step further where there's lack of confidence from the business community with government. Right. If this can happen to them uh, in, a, in a matter of, and, and that's a big issue because the two, the, the, the driving engine of this economy is small, medium-sized enterprises, full stop, yep. okay? That's the number one thing. If they don't have confidence in the government, we've got a big problem. We do. Right? They're going to build policies in government, but that doesn't mean the, the business owner is going to act in a way that will be supportive of those policies. Correct. And they will always act in a way that's going to say, I can't trust you. That integrity issue is a big problem. Uh, business owners, not only through the chamber, uh, they also need to step up and call your MP about what just happened. That protocol of I'm going to punt that decision is not only an impact to business owners, but can you imagine what else they can do right. going forward? If they're go And they're going after business owners specifically on this one. Yeah. And business owners have been hit quite a few times with this, with this government in regards to how to split income and so forth with family members and children, these are impacts that are losing the confidence and the trust of the federal government. So, uh, you know, Deborah, I want to thank you so much for all you're doing with the Chamber, helping business owners in this city, the Canadian Chamber, of course, helping business owners across the country and being one of the advocates of all business owners. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Faisal, there's been some changes, lots of changes taking place in our industry. And one of the things that's become a particular focus is conflict of interest rules. Yeah, so the regulator has been uh, for a while now looking at some of the potential conflict of interest that is between an advisor, mm -hmm. the advisor's firm, and the client. Client, yeah. And so when you're investing with an advisor or a firm, uh, a financial institution, there needs to be some disclosure of that there's any potential conflict of interest. Um, in, that, in that part, it comes down to, especially when you are a money manager, mm -hmm. a discretionary or what we call a portfolio manager, an investment advisor, um, those titles are given to individuals who have a certain license to provide um, advice and recommendations of investments to a client. Now, how do you know if that advisor is in some form of potential conflict of interest? Correct. That has not been a very transparent area of our business. And you mentioned something interesting. There's all kinds of different levels of licensing, education, experience in our industry. Correct. Right? And um, the, depending on the licensing and education, there's all kinds of different potential conflicts in there. So the industry is trying to get their hands around it get their head around it, make sure it's transparent, make sure that there's no abuses taking place. Um, but what does that mean? What does a conflict of interest mean, right? So if an advisor puts a product into a client portfolio, um, the question is, does that, does that product pay the advisor more? Mm -hmm. If there's a series of choices, do you choose, as an advisor, you choose one that pays you more than the other one, mm -hmm. right? People should know that if they do, and then why? It's not to say it's the wrong decision, just why was that decision made? So prior to this, this whole new conflict of interest conversation that's been happening and the rules coming out that are, that are out there, um, you just have, to, you just have to disclose that you do get compensated. Mm -hmm. That's all you had to disclose. I do get paid to provide you that product in your account. That's if you're an investment advisor. What you don't have to disclose is I get paid more on this product than the other product. Right. Well, or a similar product. Or a similar product. Right. 
You don't uh, have to disclose that right now. You don't. There, there are hybrid models that people run, right? We know uh, within the industry there are models where they're fee-based, some fee-based and some non-fee-based. Why? Right? Yeah, so on a fee-based account, when, when, a, when you play a, pay a percentage of whatever that's in that account, um, you're generally not allowed to receive any other form of compensation as the advisor. Well, you're not allowed, not generally, you're not allowed. Uh, and, and I'll say generally because there's a loophole. The loophole is open up a non-fee-based account, right. provide the product, get your commission, and then move that money move in. in so you're double dipping here. Right. Like these type of tactics happen in our industry, right. which frustrates me. Yes. And it what, erodes confidence. It erodes client confidence. This is the in problem. the industry as That's a whole, right. which is where I see a lot of people worry about that. Yeah. What also concerns me is when we have portfolio managers mm -hmm. and who have a discretionary authority mm -hmm. to act in the best interest of their clients, yep. given certain goals and objectives the client needs. So let's take our case. We are discretionary managers or portfolio managers. We have the responsibility to put investments into our clients' portfolio in their best interest. Correct. So let's stop right there. If we just said that, people will go, okay, that's good. Good to know. How do you know I'm not in conflict of interest? Right. How do you know I'm putting in what I'm putting in, which is in the best interest of you, but is also might be in the best interest of somebody else, like the financial institution, yeah, the firm itself, some or, company, right. whatever it may be. Right. I think what's missing right now in our industry and I believe advisors have the ability to explain this to their clients on how they re receive or put an investment in the portfolio. What's the process? I call it the filtering process for us. When I explain to our clients, we start off with the economic overview, we then go to asset allocation, how much money goes into stocks, bonds, cash, alternatives. Yep. And then from there, how do we determine what investment goes in there? Right. It, yeah, is it a stock, a bond, an ETF, is it a whatever, whatever the heck so it is. Let's give an example of, okay, we want to have a percentage of the portfolio because you're our bond guy. I'll pick on the fixed income world. Yeah. So we're going to put some money in the bond market. Now I can buy individual bonds. You can buy individual bonds for our clients. Generally, it's going to be in Canada. We can't really go around the world and start buying a whole bunch of bonds. It gets expensive. And um, it's, it's not in, it, it would not be the best interest of the client for us to go out and start buying global bonds because we believe global bonds is a better opportunity than Canadian bonds. Right. Okay. In fact, we have limited to no access to that market. Correct. Then we can go into what's called the, um, the, the fund world, so an exchange-traded fund, and just buy a global bond exchange-traded fund. That's the starting point. Okay, that's cheaper. You can have access to that market, that asset apart. And well, the it way may go. be less expensive. Let's be, just be careful. An exchange-traded fund may be less expensive. Correct. Option. Maybe. Good point. Right. Good point. Well, it can stop there. So if an advisor, if a portfolio manager is just putting ETFs, exchange-traded funds in the portfolio, have they done the due diligence to see what else is out there? Right. If a portfolio manager just puts mutual funds in there, have they done the due diligence on the other side? So you have to go through a filtering process. So in our filtering process, when we start off, yep. we pick out that asset allocation piece. In our example, global bonds. Okay, let's start off with the exchange-traded fund and see how that has done. That's the benchmark for the index, right. the global bond index. That's the benchmark. Then we filter through all of the other funds that are out there. It could be mutual funds, other exchange-traded funds that take care of this asset class that provides the best risk and reward characteristics. Correct. 
We also make sure if it's actively managed that we understand who the manager is, how long they've been on post, what's, what do they have in their portfolio? Are what's they their fully currency hedging program? What All of these How things. transparent? Will they come on and speak to the public, our clients, right. on a regular basis? So mm -hmm. that's why we bring these individuals to the show because we want people to have access to that information. What's the process that it takes to get into our portfolio? Right. That avoids the conflict of interest. Right. That people can see step by step because we're at a financial institution, we can load up all of the financial institutions, mutual funds in our portfolio right. and say it's in the best interest of the client. Right. Prove it. Right. What's the process? That's the question, it's to prove it. Does the, does the process support the discipline and the structure that you've got in place? And that's good old-fashioned um, money management, right? Good portfolio management is about filtering through all of those things. Correct. And, you know, we use the analogy, we talked about it um, uh, today even, uh, prior to the show, that if all you've got is a hammer, <laughs> everything becomes a nail. You want to have as many tools in your tool belt. That's exactly right. And I think there's two things. There's, there's two things. So... So conflict of interest, yes. Process, product, all of those things. Um, the industry's doing its bit. Clients, again, need to be asking educated questions. Ask for process and discipline and so on and so forth. Right? So I think the question or the homework I would love to give mm -hmm. our, our viewers and listeners of this show, sit down with your advisor and ask them to explain how they got those investments into your portfolio. If they make a recommendation, they call you, how did you come up with that? Right. What's your process to pick that investment? Right. Either a stock, a bond, a mutual fund, whatever it is. If you got a portfolio manager who does the picking of investments for you, walk me through how you decide what goes in, what goes out. What's your buy strategy? What's your sell strategy? They need to explain this to people. Oh, and, and they have to articulate it well because if you just say, trust me, I got this, don't trust it. Right. And, and Faisal, we've got just maybe a minute left, but I want to finish on this because you bring up a, a very good point. There's no one institution that has the smartest people in every asset class all around the world. Correct. There's no one person that can claim to be the best investor in every ac asset class around the world. Correct. So the discipline around portfolio management for a pension plan, as an example, I mean, that's our, our discipline around private pensions. You have to get the best people the best product and the best strategy given the environment that you're in and be dynamic about that, right? So just ask those questions, explore the process, make sure there's no uh, embedded conflicts of interest. If you wanna know more about the process on how you build a successful portfolio as you transition to or live in retirement, if you wanna know more why those five pillars of investments that we bring into the portfolio and how we do that, we're going to be talking all about that at our next webinar on Tuesday, August 24th, 7 p.m., live online. You need to register, so go to morethanmoneyradio.com. That's morethanmoneyradio.com to register. Well, we look forward to seeing you. Um, listen, happy stampeding, and on behalf of Faisal, myself, Dave, thank you for tuning in to another edition of More Than Money, and we look forward to chatting with you next week.
David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada. David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmeli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.